0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. That was a good pitch, wasn't it? I'm telling you that I have some of the world's best thinkers and writers on the show, and this is a daily show about the pitch. They pitch me. And then I have them on the show and they pitch you. They're trying to convince you in a sense that you are they are backable, that you want to read their books, that you want to listen to their work, that you want to watch their movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are arguing, suggesting usually implicitly that um, you should take A chance on them. You should invest some of your money and perhaps more importantly your time in their work, in their thoughts, in their ideas, in their art. So what better conversation today to have uh, with someone who's written a book about this, a book about the show, Backable, how to convince anyone to take a chance on you by Sunil Gupta, that is, uh, I think the the subtitle of the book has actually changed since I I looked at the PDF. Now the subtitle is The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You by uh, Sunil Gupta. So Sunil, easy question to kick off with. Why are you backable? Why should people want to read your book? (laughs) Convince (laughs) me and convince my audience.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Ken, I mean, you know, Andrew, I think that we we sort of enter into book writing for one of two reasons. I know a lot of people who are watching are really into reading books. And what I have found is that authors tend to write a book because they either have a problem or because they have a solution. I certainly had a problem, not a solution, which was I was pitching my ideas to all these people and I was getting rejected. And I realized that happens all of the time. You know, creativity and persuasion are two different things. You could have a brilliant idea. You could have a brilliant vision. You could be a great candidate for a job and you could still be dismissed. And so I got really interested in who are these backable people who are able to walk into a room and convince us to take a chance on them. Even when they don't have the most obvious idea, even when they're not necessarily the obvious choice for a role, we still want to rally around them. I got obsessed with what are those qualities and how do we learn them?
0: There are three words, I think, Sunil, that lie behind this book. Uh, You throw them out at the beginning. Why not me? Hmm. Uh, You... Your narrative begins as you as a, as a failure. You're, you're participating in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ironic Silicon Valley uh, event called FailCon in which usually actually fairly successful Silicon Valley entrepreneurs show off their failure. Only the rich can be proud of their failure out here. But mm. you genuinely were, I mean, not really a failure, but you were a failure compared to most people in Silicon Valley. Um, so why not me? You suggest that everyone has that in them. Everyone believes that they have an idea in them. You suggest that, um, and I'm quoting you here. I'm convinced we all have a brilliant idea tucked away somewhere. So you are a, you are a proponent of this radical democratization of the world, uh, Sunil. We're all geniuses, are we?
1: Potentially, anyway. Well, I I, yeah. I mean, I think we all certainly have unused creativity inside of us. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean that you you need to have an idea for an for a brand new billion dollar tech company. It might be it might be a tweak to the way that things are running inside your office right now. It might be it might be a suggestion for the way that your community around you operates. These don't need to be, again, unicorn breakthroughs. But I think that the frustration. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry,
0: uh, jumping in here, Sunil. Sure. Uh, uh, not everyone will know what a unicorn breakthrough is. You might explain that.
1: Yeah, a unicorn is a, a unicorn is a is a is a term used for you know multi, you know a billion dollar plus company. It's a Silicon Valley sort of term. And you know, I'm coming to you by the way, outside of you know, I know you're you're, you're based in San Francisco Bay Area. I'm I'm back in my hometown in Michigan, uh, right outside of Detroit, and you know, people come. People coming up with breakthrough ideas all of the time here, all of the time, and uh, it could be inside their company, it could be with their customers, it could be inside their communities. And I think we, I, yes, I am convinced that we all have an idea tucked away somewhere. There's in the course of our day, we're always coming across things that could be changed, things could be improved. But as we know, no one, no one really creates change alone. We need teams, we need hiring managers, we need people, we need investors sometimes. Sometimes we even need friends and family to just take a chance on us, to see in us what we see in ourselves. Convince
0: others of ourselves. And also, I think this is a book about convincing ourselves of ourselves. As I said, uh, take a chance on me. There's a certain kind of sadness at the beginning of the book that here you are as the, um, as the Mr. Everyman entrepreneur who people aren't willing to take a chance on. And then in the end, at the end of the book, people are willing to take a chance and you have a relative amount of success. But there's an irony, Sunil, at the heart of Mm. this book, because on the one hand, it's all about taking a chance on me. But you're suggesting that the way to do that, ironically enough, is to let go of your ego. So are the winners the peoples who are able to overcome their ego? You seem to have been shackled by your ego, Sunil. It imprisoned mm. you. It made you into a failure. Is that fair?
1: Well, I think that we all have to, I think, wrestle with our own egos. And I certainly have had to wrestle with mine uh, to the extent that we we, we was are- that, Was make- that a
0: quite a strenuous experience, wrestling with your ego? Sure.
1: Sure. I think it is. Yeah. How about, how about you, Andrew? I mean, have you had to wrestle with yours? I don't have one, fortunately. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, I just ask the questions. I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, most of us do. And, and, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the, I think, you know, my favorite story in the book really is about a guy named Dr. George Schaller, who is a primatologist and he, was a very famous primatologist. He mentored people like Diane Fossey, who Sigourney Weaver played in the movie Gorillas in the Mist. And the reason that Dr. Schaller was so successful is because he was able to get closer to the gorillas, closer to the, the primates than really most researchers were able to. And so there's this famous story about how he was presented at a conference one day and somebody in the audience raised their hand and said, "You know, Dr. Schaller, been studying these these gorillas. How is it that you are able to get so close to them? And Schaller looks at him, he says, look, it's pretty simple. I never carry a gun. I never carry a weapon. And the reason that that was so astounding for people is because while researchers carried a gun, they typically carried it in their backpack. So it wasn't in plain sight. But Schaller's view is that you can hide a gun, but you can never hide your attitude around a gun. And the reason that matters for what we're talking about here, Andrew, is because I think that in a lot of ways, the ego is sort of the gun inside our backpack. It's the thing that we think people don't notice, but it creates a sense of separation. It's an agenda. It's, it's, it's our it's our desire to be the smartest person in the room or to try to pretend like we're somebody that we're not. And becoming backable is you know, it, it's many things, but but it, it's very hard to do if you're trying to be someone that you're not. Ultimately, being backable is about finding out who you are and being the best version of that.
0: It's a little coincidental, though, isn't it, Sunil, that um, that only, only people who are able to uh, somehow camouflage their ego or lose their ego are successful? Because some of the most successful people in Silicon Valley are clearly Deeply egotistical, whether it's whether it was Steve Jobs or Larry Ellison, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, uh, or or, or uh, some of the other uh, leading entrepreneurs in the Valley. Sure. Uh, d- do you think that somebody like Jobs, who you bring up uh, from time to time in the book, was able to um, let go of his ego?
1: I don't know. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have unfortunately a chance to study him, but you know, I I think that people who I, people who are around him said that that the version of Steve jobs they saw when he returned to Apple was certainly a lot softer Mm. uh, and less egotistical than the version who left Apple in the first place. That's the, that's the, that's the feedback that, that I heard from the people who are closest to him and had an opportunity to study him in both times. Um, But that's not to say that, you know, he has let go of his ego entirely. And I I think that most of us haven't, you know, the ego is not, I I think it's, I think it's something to be managed, but I think it's very, very hard to eliminate it entirely. And which is not really the point. I think the point Mm -hmm. is more to be aware of when it's controlling you versus knowing when you can control it. There are two E
0: words in contemporary culture, Sunil, that are, in vogue i guess they've always been in vogue but they're particularly in yeah. vogue one is a, the bad one ego mm. the other e word which has become incredibly fashionable comes up seems every week on the show is empathy and mm. it seems as if in your book you uh contrast um ego with empathy you say the backable individual is the one who is able to establish what you call an empathy bridge uh, between mm. the backer and the customer. Empathy, um, you say storyboarding has a way of creating empathy between the backer, between your backer and, and the person you want to serve. But why is empathy so important if you want to be backable?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, because what you're ultimately trying to do is, is to create some sense of who is the person you're trying to serve and why why does that matter to the person who is sitting across the table from you you know the chapter that you were just pointing to is called cast a central character it's one of the it's one of the things that backable people tend to do which is to take sort of this spotlight that is inevitably on you when you walk into a room and turn that spotlight to the person that you are actually trying to serve who is your central character who is that person and when we do that a couple of things happen number 1 it, it it's much easier to speak confidently when you're talking about representing someone else inside a room than when it is about representing yourself. We know that. But the second thing is that you are now starting to, I think, pull the people across the table from you into the story of what it is that you're trying to do. You know, when I was pitching, I pitched Tim Ferriss on on my, uh, my, uh, my idea for my startup, Rise. And he had just written- uh, Tim Ferriss, uh,
0: again, uh, uh, Sunil, not everyone will know who Tim Ferriss is. Here we have, for those people watching, uh, his uh, balding image on, on the screen. Who is Tim
1: Ferriss? Yeah, so Tim Ferriss is an author. He wrote The 4-Hour Workweek. And by the time that I pitched him, he had finished writing a book called The 4-Hour Body. Now, my startup focused on one-on-one nutrition coaching right over your mobile phone. So Tim, was Tim to me, was sort of a, a logical person to pitch on this idea. And the way that I sort of structured that pitch was I, I talked about the market. I talked about the increasing rates of diabetes and hypertension and obesity. And then at the very end of the story, I told a tale about my father. And my father had a triple bypass surgery when he was in his 40s. And I talked about how, when I went to the hospital to see him, it was an emergency, it was an emergency operation. So when I went to go see him, I was about nine years old and, and he had aged about 20 years overnight. And I remember when we were driving home, they had given us some paperwork and on that paperwork were, you know, things to eat, things to do. And I remember reading these pieces of paper and it said things like eat, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, we we were an Indian family. We didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts. And so lucky for us, insurance helped pay for the cost of a nutritionist who was really able to customize our lifestyle to make it fit what I think would actually stick for my dad. And you know, knock on wood, he's still alive today. And I believe it's in large part because of the work that he did with that nutritionist. So I I, I told that story at the very end of my pitch. And Tim Ferriss' feedback to me was, why did you say that story to the very end? you should tell that story up front because stories are really what pull us in and substance is really what keeps us there so you know have a way of pulling you know people in through the use of a central character that person that you're trying to serve get people invested in that and then you can talk about the numbers then you can talk about the millions of people who are out there that in my case we're going through their own version of the same problem
0: yeah, storytelling is the, the core of the book. And that's why I think it's a particularly interesting conversation for a lit hub audience. Um, you you talk about Ferris uh, in the book, you say that his book, Four Hour Work Week uh, came out well, about 15 years ago. Uh, it was a, a literary sensation. But the first uh, versions of the book weren't successful because he wasn't writing for anyone. He didn't know who he was telling the story to. You say that Becoming backable re- requires telling a good story, being a, a narrator. So the great narrators are backable. Yeah. How do you become a good narrator then?
1: Uh, um, I think you become a, Yeah, I think you become a good narrator by focusing on who it is that you are trying to serve, who is your central character, and how is the world unfolding through their eyes. No, I think that a, a bad narrator is somebody who's simply staying at the very high level and sort of telling you what it's like through their eyes. I think a good narrator is really taking you straight into the into the customer's eyes and, and helping you understand what they're seeing. And, you know, I think in the book, we use a tool called storyboarding to do that. So what is the play-by-play? What, what exactly is the customer experiencing? And where is the pain? come along the way. You know, one of the one of the companies that I that I talk about in the book is is Dollar Shave Club, which Dollar Shave Club was a, you know, a, a, a way to a way to purchase sort of men's grooming supplies online. And uh, the founder Michael Dubin, when he was raising his his first round of funding, he struggled to to find investors because he was pitching people mainly in Silicon Valley who were used to investing in things like artificial intelligence. And at that time, starting to invest in crypto and, and, you know, things that, that, that were, that were sort of more sexy razor blades didn't really fit sort of that theme. And, you know, the, one of his first investors, a woman named Kirsten Green sort of told me the story about how, when she first got the pitch deck for this razor blade company, she had zero interest. She felt like razor blades were this low margin product, it wasn't really going to work as an online business. She didn't feel like she didn't feel compelled to invest, but she ended up running into Michael Dubin at an event. And she said that within five minutes, her mind was changed. Within five minutes, she wanted to invest. And what happened in those five minutes wasn't that Michael Dubin talked about the fact that this was a multi-billion dollar opportunity or, or should of give the sort of standard market size pitch? What he did is he walked her through the storyboard. Of the idea of you've got a late, you got someone, uh, typically a male in his late 20s, who cares a lot more about his health than his father ever did. That includes what he puts inside his body and what he puts on his body. But he's been used to this sort of e commerce experience that kind of isn't really available at that time for men's grooming products. So he goes to his local pharmacy or grocery store. He goes to the he has to find navigate to the aisle where the razor blades are sold. Oftentimes those razor blades are literally behind a lock and key, so he's got to push a button. He's got to wait for someone to come find him in the aisle. That worker is typically annoyed because you've pulled him or her away from another task. They sort of look over your shoulder as you're now making your purchasing decision, and by the way, it's not just it's not just razor blades that are behind this case. There are also things like laxatives and condoms. So it's kind of an embarrassing experience. People, people don't know what you're actually there to buy. And now they watch you make your purchasing decision and, 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 and you, have to, you have to sort of then go out to the counter and check out. And as he walked her through this experience, he was like, look, the entire thing is ripe for disruption. The whole thing is, is ripe to be reinvented. And that's what I want to do. And it was walking her through that storyboard that got her interested in the idea.
0: Sunil, and and this occurred to me when I was reading the book, when does the backable part of the human condition end and something else begins? Because it seems to be in the book that you're Mm -hmm. suggesting that everything else is boring and that we need to be backing ourselves all the time. Uh, I saw this headline in the the Financial Times today, uh, OnlyFans has taken off, everyone now is... Peddling their their brands, their stories on the internet. We have an incre- increasingly radically democratized uh, media world in which everyone's selling their own stories and bodies and images and music and movies to everybody else. Um, is the story of life backable, or is there a private life you you think that can coexist with backability? Yeah, sorry, Andrew. Don't 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 understand the question. Uh, should are you presenting life itself as commercial, as always wanting to be backed, as telling stories about oneself in order to sell something to someone else? Because I, I I didn't see the, the the private life presented in the book. Maybe
1: maybe it just wasn't
0: necessary in some way.
1: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by private life, but I I think I think that um. You know, when we think about sort of what separates us as human beings, I think it's really our imaginations. I think our imagination is constantly running. It's constantly coming up with new ideas. And I think when we can't express those ideas, when we can't bring out our creativity into the world, that's when I think we start to become frustrated. That's when we start to become depressed in, in, in a lot of ways because we feel like we have this unused creativity. And one of my favorite quotes is from Picasso, and I've turned it into a game that I play with my daughters every morning. I have, a, I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and I ask them, what is the meaning of life? And they say, to find your gift. And then I ask them, what is the purpose of life? And they say, to give it away. The meaning of life is to find your gift, and, and the purpose of life is to give it away. And, and I think that, that that is very much you know delving into who we are, how we spend our personal time, what our gifts are, But then how do we take those gifts and how do we share them with others?
0: You call this, it seems, the game of now. That's the conclusion. And you suggest that, uh, and I'm quoting you here, the game of now may not always lead to success. But the opposite of success isn't failure, it's boredom. Um, So let's play this game together. But what happens if people don't want to be backable? If they're simply not interested, if they don't believe they have gifts, if they don't want to tell stories to the rest of the world? Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that people, I think people want to share I think people want to express what I have found is that oftentimes people either sometimes feel like they have tried that and it did not work. They did not get the response that they were looking for. And that happens all the time. You know, one of the, one of the, one of the things that we found in researching the book is that if you look inside big companies Most ideas actually aren't killed. Even the great ones aren't killed inside formal pitch meetings or conference rooms. They actually get killed inside the hallways. They get killed inside parking lots because what happens is we sort of blurt out our idea in casual conversations. We don't get the response that we're looking for. And so we take our idea, we put it in a mental drawer and we sort of walk away. That happens all the time. You know, Andrew, I know you, you, you think a lot about COVID and the state of the world that we're in. One of the stories that that's worth sort of bringing up is in the 1920s, you had a physician named Dr. Alexander Fleming. And Fleming was on the front lines of World War One, And he noticed that many, many soldiers were dying, but they weren't dying from their wounds. They were dying from infection of their wounds. And so when he left the war, he decided that he was going to find a cure to this problem. And in the 1920s, he did. He found a mold, discovered a mold that would stop the spread of bacteria. So you do at that point what, what I think anybody would do. You you It's your eureka moment. You rush out, you share it with others. And he does. And he doesn't get the response that he's looking for. People are kind of blasé about the whole thing. And so he takes his invention, he puts it on a shelf, and he walks away. Well, over the next 10 years, things got really bad for infection. Hundreds of thousands of people dying every year, not unlike what, what, in a lot of ways what we're going through right now. Finally, another physician by the name of Dr. Howard Florey comes along and says, enough is enough. We need to find a cure to this problem. So he goes sifting through all the research he can find, and he discovers an article written 10 years before by Dr. Alexander Fleming. And Fleming had even given his invention a name. It called it penicillin. So the two of them partner up. They take it to market now, but they take it out there in a much more backable way. They rally pharmaceutical companies. They bring in investors. They partner with retailers, and they make it into something you could find in the local grocery store. Penicillin, to date, has been responsible for saving over 200 million lives, and yet it was an invention that almost never existed. This is what we mean by playing the game of now. That's true. Although there's only one Alexander
0: Fleming, one penicillin, and and a lot of the startups, even the ones you mention in the book, aren't necessarily beneficial to mankind. Most of the startups coming out of Silicon Valley, your startup true. was it was a a health startup. So most of these backable enterprises aren't necessarily good for the world. In fact, some of the most successful in Silicon Valley from facebook to google more and more people and, and amazon of course are arguing of actually being unhealthy so i'm not convinced that mm-hmm. when necessary the game of now is making the world a better place is it
1: well i think there's a lot of people to your point that play the game of now uh that don't necessarily do good for the world well, we, we we we've seen plenty of examples of, of that as of late we see the fire festival We've seen situations with WeWork and Theranos. Uh, you have, uh, a, I, by the way, you
0: have a great quote. I love your quote on uh, on on WeWork. Uh, you said you're quoting someone. You said when discussing uh, Newman, who was the uh, the founder, I think, CEO of WeWork, which was basically a a, a bit of a fraud. Uh, one investor told me that there is a difference between a founder who has a vision and one who is having visions. I think that was one of my favorite uh, favorite sentences in the book.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. So, uh, you know, I mean, Newman Newman is, I think, an example of this. But then on the on the flip side, you have you know somebody like Bob Ebeling, who was one of the engineers when the Space Shuttle Challenger went up in 1986, and Ebeling, an engineer, had all the data, and when he looked at the data, he said, "Look, something's wrong here. We shouldn't send this shuttle up to space. Something bad is going to happen." And so he did. I think what what most of us would do. He he called a meeting. He brought all of his colleagues together, he showed them the data, and no one listened. They said, Look, we 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 we're sending this we're sending this thing up anyway. And the next morning, Challenger sends, gets sent up, disintegrates within 90 seconds. We interviewed, you know, NPR interviewed Bob Ebeling shortly before he died, and, and what he what he basically said is look, God shouldn't have chosen me for that job. I had all the data, but I wasn't able to convince them. I wasn't able to be persuasive enough inside the room. And again, Andrew, it gets back to the point that like creativity and persuasion are two different things. And sure, there's a lot of ideas that get put out into the world that aren't a net benefit. But what about the flip side of the equation? What about all the people out there that are high integrity, that do have the green lightsabers in their hands and want to do good for the world, but haven't been able to find a way to get other people to listen? That's who this book is for.
0: It's an excellent book, Sunil. Uh, it's a book about storytelling. And I guess w- one of the ironies in some ways of the book is uh, that you you had a ghostwriter, Carly Adler. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, what did you learn about storytelling from working with, with Carly? Uh,
1: Carly's an excellent writer. I mean, the two of us collaborated really well together. And I think what I learned is that you know, when you think about storytelling for a book, you know, that there are there are sets of stories that you tell along the way, and then there's an overarching story that you tell throughout the whole book. And I think if you can do that in the right way, you know, some people call it narrative nonfiction, you know, you 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 start to you start to create something that that reads like a novel.
0: Although the best novelists often have unreliable narrators, don't they, Sunu? Untrustworthy <laughs> ones. I, 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 I'm not sure about that, Andrew. Um, finally, uh, Sunil, some people are going to be thinking, this guy looks a lot like Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, a, a younger version of Sanjay Gupta, the uh, medical chief medical correspondent of CNN. I didn't actually know, uh, Sunil, that you were his younger brother until, um, until I read it in the book. Uh, what does Sanjay taught you personally about mm. Um, leading a good life, not just a successful life, but a good life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sundrey Sanjay, Sanjay's taught me a whole bunch. He's ten years older than me, and he's sort of been, you know, almost like a second father to me. You know, and I think that a lot of, I think a lot of what Sanjay has taught me is this idea that, you know, that there there's a there's a phrase that I read in a book called Feeling Good, uh, which is written by Dr. David Burns, and he has a phrase called one unit of worth. One unit of worth, which is to, which is to make sure that you see everybody, including yourself with one unit of worth, no matter who they are, no matter what it is they do for a living, you have one unit of worth. They have one unit of worth. It doesn't matter if they're the, they're a billionaire or, or, or whatever it is they do. It's one unit of worth and to treat people equally. And I think that we, we need, we need more of that mindset right now. It's something that Sanjay, I think has just sort of instilled in me in at in a very,
0: i don't have a photo sunil but the the real spirit behind this book in addition to your father who you mentioned who, who who fortunately is still alive even though he he's had a lot of health problems uh is your mother she's your real inspiration for the book and indeed for life yeah. i don't have a photo of her uh, but tell me finally about your mother about your mom why she's such a remarkable woman and why she she uh, inspired the book Um, and your ability to perhaps lose your
1: ego. Yeah, Damienti Hingarani, her maiden name, was was, raised in large part in a refugee camp on the border of Pakistan and India. No running water, no electricity. But she did something remarkable. She taught herself how to read. And the first book that she read from cover to cover was the biography of Henry Ford. And she decided that she wanted to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company, which was a very unlikely vision, a very unlikely dream for somebody in those circumstances at that time as a woman. But her parents got behind the vision, they got behind the dream, and they saved every penny that they had to get her on a boat, get her to the United States, where she got a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. She graduated as the only woman in her engineering class. And the next day, she drove to Detroit, Michigan to find her dream job. And she actually found her way into a meeting with a hiring manager. But when this hiring manager looked at her resume, he was confused. He looked at her and he said, wait a second, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm sorry. you know, We actually don't have any female engineers working here right now. See, this was the 1960s. And while Ford Motor Company was in its heyday, not a single one, not a single person on staff was a female engineer. And so this is a really deflating moment for the Manthi Hirani. And she picks up her purse and picks up her resume and she begins to walk out of the room. And then almost in this last ditch moment, she turns around and she looks this guy in the eyes and she says to him, look, you know, things are changing. And if you don't have any female engineers on staff, then do yourself a favor and hire me now because so much struggle went into getting to this country, to getting to Detroit, to getting into this very room. And it was in that moment that this hiring manager from suburban Michigan decides to take a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world, and Menti Hingarani, now Menti Gupta, my mom, becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. That's says, what the
0: book, that is what, uh, sunil gupta's book backable the surprising truth about what makes people take a chance on you that's what it's about how to convince someone to take a gamble on you his mother succeeded he succeeded no doubt i think everyone's gonna uh pick up this book it's, it's a very valuable book in in, in pitching oneself and in uh, this this ironic detachment between self-pitching and losing one's ego Uh, Sunil mentioned that his mother showed up in Michigan. Sunil is back in Michigan, in Birmingham, Michigan, um, with his family, with his daughters and wife. Uh, Sunil, in these strange times, uh, in addition to backable, what else should people be reading as we're all still locked inside? Your your brother has reminded us that we, we still need to wear our masks. What should people be reading?
1: Yeah, you know this is one of my favorites here that I that I've loved over the, during the pandemic, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse by Charlie Maxey. It's a it's a wonderful wonderful book. I've been reading it with my daughters actually, but it's it's for people of all ages. It's beautifully illustrated. It's got messages throughout. It's a very quick read and uh, highly highly recommended, especially especially now. Well. The uh, What do you call it? The
0: Game of Now is is Sunil's game, which is encouraging us all to play. Wonderful read, wonderful interview, Sunil. I look forward to having you back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk not only about the ego, but empathy. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thanks for having me on.